We suck again. I had 3,000 employees that couldn't go to an office, couldn't do work, and we only had one computer for each person, and none of them had internet in their home. Not one. And I looked at my partner, Murley, at the time, and, I, and he looked at me and he said, don't do it. And I said, I got to do it. And I just stood up and I said, money, 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 money. And I was like, okay, this is the address. So we go up and knock on the door, and his mom walks out in a moo-moo. I was like, well, where's Brad? She's like, oh, he's in the garage playing video games. Uh, this was one of my biggest mistakes. And this was one of the biggest things I learned was don't trust the financial investors. They are in it for themselves. They are not in it for you. This is one of my other things is these people all think they know way better than you do. And they'll give you all this advice and you got to go with your gut. My name is John Simpson. I'm 55 years old now. I live in El Dorado Hills, California, and my company is Patra Corporation. Started in 2005, and we provide tech-enabled services to the insurance industry. More specifically, we focus on the back office, allowing our customers to focus on the front office, and we provide services to the brokers, MGAs, wholesalers, and carriers throughout the insurance market. Yeah, I was going to ask who your customers are. So is, is it like independent insurance people or is it even bigger companies as well? Oh, no, they're usually very large organizations. So we got started focusing on brokers. And when you think of brokers, there's a lot of different brokers people know. They know their Geico's, their State Farms. That's what people think of because they're used to personal lines insurance. But there's a lot of commercial lines insurance that's sold through large brokers. And companies you may have heard of are like Aon, Willis, USI. Wells Fargo even had it for a while. USI bought them. So there's a lot of large brokers. And then there's independent brokers around the country. And they range anywhere from billions of dollars of revenue to just a couple hundred thousand dollars of revenue. There's actually 40,000 brokers throughout the United States that sell different insurance products. And the big difference between, let's say, the State Farm agent, they're selling the State Farm product only. Whereas when you go to a broker for your business, they're looking at lots of different carriers, insurance providers to supply your insurance needs. And so they might go to a Hartford or an AIG or Travelers, and they will quote different lines of business versus if you go to your State Farm person, that's what they sell you, State Farm insurance. And so yours is just a technology platform or something to make their back end run a little bit more efficient. That's what you've created. Yeah, it's a technology-enabled services. So it's combining technology and people to get the job done. So it actually started off doing certificates of insurance. So a lot of times contractor needs to go on a job. They need to provide the construction site manager, the large contractor, a certificate of insurance, essentially proof of insurance that they have the proper insurance in place. So you would call your broker and say, I need this certificate made. And they would have somebody in the back office create that certificate. And so we started a service back in 2005, generating those certificates of insurance for these brokers when they need it out of India. So we actually have India employees creating these certificates of insurance for these brokers. Cool. Well, yeah, we'll discuss, I guess, kind of how you got started because it seems interesting. But I guess overall, before we rewind it to that point or even before that, how big is your company today? So today, employee-wise size, we have about 3,000-ish employees in India and about 450 employees in the United States and about 100 and some odd employees in the Philippines. So close to about 4,000 employees overall globally. Our revenue this year will do probably around $75 million. And you were the founder of it? 
Yes, myself and another gentleman by the name of Dan Easterlin, he and I started the company together. Are you all still friends? Yeah, but he's retired from the organization, and so he's moved to Montana and living his retirement. And so I don't really see him much more these days or hear from him these days. So what is your role today versus like when you got started? Well, I'm the CEO, and so everything rolls up to me. I'm the one throat to choke at the end of the day. And when I got started, he and I split responsibilities. I was responsible for getting the business going from a business aspect, going out, getting new sales. And there's a lot to that we'll get to later, probably. And then he was off in India with his brother that we hired at the time, and they were setting up the operations in India. So that was the division of labor at that time. And do you have family? Yeah. I'm married for almost 30 years now to my wife, Stacy. We've got three kids. One's going to be a senior at Boise State studying human resources, takes after his mother. My son, my middle son, is a sophomore in a five to six year program of architecture at Cal Poly. And my daughter recently graduated from high school and she's got her cosmetology license and is off on her own starting her career. So you can get free makeup done or what? Yeah, we get haircuts, makeups. I don't do the makeup, obviously, but my wife gets her hair done. Actually, last night she was over here. I turned her uh, bedroom into a salon when she moved out. So redid the floors, put the chair in, the nail station, the hair washing station, all that. So works out well for her. Well, you can tell us you get free haircuts. It's all right. I do. I would take advantage of that. I get free haircuts, you know, when she's around. If she's not around, I still have to run down to the Great Clips. Understood. Well, I guess anything else you think we should know about your company overall before rewind it? No, I think, you know, we'll get into it when you rewind and the whole life history. Well, I guess before we do too, did you ever think that you'd grow a company to be this big? (laughs) You know, that's uh, very interesting. It was always my goal. And I was really close back in the dot-com days. I was two weeks away from filing to go public with one company. So yes, I did think that and had always dreamt of that. But this company, I didn't start off, ironically, I didn't start it off thinking we would grow this to be a very large business. I thought it would be a lifestyle, family-run business and just kind of working through life. It wasn't going to be the hard-charging company that we had tried to do before. But then I realized about halfway through that there was an opportunity to take it much larger. All right. So yeah, why don't we run it to how you got started or what's the best spot for us to start in the story? (laughs) Well, you know, the question is for you, eventually we'll get to where the company started or do you want to wind back as to how I got to be where I am along my journey to start that company? Because it's quite an interesting story. I think, I don't know if your listeners will find it that interesting, but I find it interesting because lots of twists and turns along the way. Right. Well, I want to hear the long version. So, and they're not on the call. So we'll pretend that they're going to enjoy (laughs) it. All right. Well, it does go back to when I was a child. I didn't know we're going that far back. Okay. Yeah. Well, there is a little history there. And, you know, I was raised in a family where we just, we didn't go on vacations. We didn't have a lot of money. And I was always doing everything I could to make money. I would sell this newspaper called Grit. You probably have never even heard of it. When I was eight years old, you know, distribute yellow pages. Uh, I was a paper boy and of multiple different routes. And so I'd do anything I could do to make money. But my life really changed. And you'll understand this in a second here. My life really changed when my brother, my middle brother, I was the youngest of three. My oldest brother was six years older. My middle brother was five years older. And I was 11 and he was 16. And he was in a car accident and he died. It's like two days after Christmas in 1978. And 
that just changed the whole world for me. My older brother was going off to college. My mother went into severe depression. My dad had to go back to work. And so I had to run the household at 11 years old and taught me a lot of responsibility. But you know, and back then you didn't get very large insurance settlements, but they did get a little bit of money. And that enabled them to send me to private school starting in eighth grade, a couple of years after my brother died. And again, you know, what did that result in? Well, later in that school, when I went to a school called St. Stephen's out of Alexandria, Virginia, I got an internship for the summer, my junior year of summer at K Jewelers. And I'm sure everybody's heard of that. Every kiss begins with K. And, you know, at their corporate offices, which is in Old Town, Alexandria, one of the most amazing places to work. When I went in there, you know, I was a junior in high school. You know, what was I interested in doing? Partying and just doing what I could do, but also trying to make money. But I didn't know much. Computers were just emerging at that point in time. Literally, you know, computers with big floppy drives were just coming on the market. And there was no internet, clearly. These were eight-inch floppy drives. You know, and the machines would churn and churn and churn just to get 256K bytes out of them. But I went down, they put me and sent me down to the treasurer's office and I go down there and he throws a software manual at me called DBase. You probably never heard of that, but he throws DBase at me. And this is at a time when like, you know, VisiCalc, SuperCalc were just coming out. And uh, he says, I want you to write a check reconciliation program. And I went, well, I don't even know what check reconciliation means and I don't know how to program. And he goes, that's what you got six weeks to figure out. So go to my cash controller. She'll uh, help you understand what you need to build and you go build it. Whenever you have questions, you come to me. Over the six weeks, I built it and I understood what it did. I understood what the requirements were. I learned the program. I built it. And as the internship was ending, the controller of the company came up to me and said, would you like an ongoing job through weekends, holidays, summers, whenever you can work, we need somebody to help pull programs off the mainframe onto these PCs. So for the next six years, I worked for K Jewelers all the way through college. After college, I literally worked in every department of that company. You name it from security and facilities all the way up to inventory, sales, marketing, credit, accounting, finance, HR, benefits, payroll. I was in every department and I got to do amazing things with that company. I got to go travel around the country, visiting with district managers, learning the store. They put me in and I did sales for a while. And after I graduated, I remember the CEO came up to me November of my senior year and said, what are they paying you? What are they paying kids with your, you know, I, I got a finance degree from University of Richmond. And he said, what are the kids making? I said, oh, probably, you know, upper thirties is what kids are making these days coming out of college. This was back in 1988. And he goes, all right, I'll pay you $42,000, but you got to say yes. And I want you to come and you work for me. I show you a report to the CFO and you'll be in charge of special projects. So I went and did that. I continued doing what I was doing, but I also got to manage their relocation of their corporate headquarters. I was automating their inventory vault area. I got to go with the CEO to sell $100 million junk bonds up and down the East Coast. It was quite a learning experience, right? And what I didn't realize I was learning, he said to me eventually, he goes, I can tell you're going to be a CEO one day. And what you're learning is how to run a company because you're learning every aspect of that company. And that really set me up because I was not a very, studious student, to say the least. I was more interested in making money and going to parties. 
That was my focus. So I would work hard and I would play hard. I just didn't care about school because that was just something that was in my way to making money at the time. So that's how I got my career started. And then I went off to do several other things, which could take hours to probably talk through. You know, I started a couple of companies. I worked for various companies and I landed in California at one point in time working for Healthion, which Healthion was a startup company that Jim Clark started. Now, Jim Clark was the founder of Netscape. I don't know if you remember Netscape or heard of Netscape, but it was one of the original browsers before Chrome and all that that was out there. And so he started this company called Healthion to drive the internet connectivity between physicians, carriers, insurance providers, pharmacies, employers, and all that. So I went in there to help develop some of the software for that. So that was my first exposure into a company that was really part of the major dot-com era during that time. And so I was there for about a year and got an opportunity through a gentleman I had worked with before to go up to Seattle and work for a company that was building software for the shipping industry. And we were going to go around and sell the software around the globe. And I was like, how cool is that? Get to travel all over the world to major shipping ports and try to sell the software. And the guy who hired me was Dan Easterlin, my eventual partner of Patra. And I had worked for him previously at a company called Ceridian, which is a major payroll company. So we got up there and we were starting this project and all of a sudden the project got canceled. And we're like, what the heck happened? I was a contractor. They basically said, you're gone and I'm without a job. I had left this startup company that was going to go public. Ultimately, by the way, Healthion sold to WebMD. So everyone's probably heard of WebMD. But I left that company to go do this adventure. And then I get all of a sudden canned. And I'm like, what am I going to do? But fortunately, they were a very nice company and they gave me six months severance on my contractor salary, which was like a year salary of what I had at the previous company. So at that point, I started a company with some people I knew from the Healthy On company called Cyberbills. And we were developing the future of online bill pay. Bill pay did not exist. You could do some online checking. Bank of America had online checking. Wells Fargo had online checking. Maybe Chase Bank had online checking, but it was just in its infancy. And we were working to build online bill pay, but we had to take a different approach. You couldn't just turn everybody's bills into electronic. They weren't ready for that. So what we did was we created lockboxes, you know, mailing lockboxes, and we would have people change their billing address from their home to these lockboxes. And we would pick up the mail, open them up, scan them, and do OCR technology to put the bill contents into electronic form. And then we would connect that with online checking. And then we had full end-to-end automatic bill pay for everybody. So that was going off. And we literally within two years had raised $50 million. We had hired the number two man in the postal service to help us build out all this technology that would need to receive and scan the bills, open them up and everything. And we had hired people around the globe and we had customers like Wells Fargo, Chase Bank, Intuit, and Texaco were all major customers. And we were, like I said before, two weeks away from filing to go public when the dot-com crash happened. I'll never forget March 2000 when the bankers called me and said, sorry, we can't take you public. But I had just raised $30 million. So I was like, oh, no problem. We'll just continue on. And a year later, and one of the big lessons I learned through all this was a year later, we were still burning $2 million a month at that point thinking, hey, you know, we're on a rocket ship. 
What does it matter? We'll get the money. But we couldn't get the money. There was no money to be had anywhere. Everybody ran for the hills. All the financial investors, and this was one of the biggest things I learned was don't trust the financial investors. They are in it for themselves. They are not in it for you. But the strategic investors stood in there. Intuit, Texaco were there for me week after week to make certain I could meet payroll until we were able to sell the company. And I sold the company to Medavante about a year and a half later after the dot-com crash happened. I didn't make any money off of that, but people kept their jobs and the vendors got their money back. And some of the investors got some of their money back too. So that was a big ethical moment for me during that time. And well, let's pause there if you don't mind. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Energetic Austin here. Are you tired of doing it all at your company? Are you looking for an easier way to onboard and manage remote employees? Well, JustWorks makes it easier for you to start, run, and grow a business. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help your business. With JustWorks, employees can onboard themselves in minutes with simple software that makes a great first impression. You can give them access to national large group health insurance plans and handle payroll and PTO requests all on one platform. Plus, it comes with JustWorks expert 24-7 support for you and your team. JustWorks can relieve you of some of the administrative work you don't love, like taking notes on our podcast episodes, or things like running payroll, managing benefits, and figuring out state-by-state rules and regulations. JustWorks makes it simple to hire and manage remote employees across all 50 states. With JustWorks, you can onboard new employees with ease in an intuitive online platform. You can take the guesswork out of employee and tax regulations and requirements. You can access national health insurance plans so your employees can get coverage no matter where they live. You can also get help setting up sick leave policies and administering harassment and discrimination prevention trainings that comply with state and local requirements. Save hours on time tracking the sinks with your payroll. Plus, access 24-7 expert support as well as certified HR consultants to get answers to your questions whenever you need them. Manage your remote team and run your business with confidence. Find out how JustWorks can help your business by going to JustWorks.com. That's JustWorks.com for more info. Do you like wearing hats like me? Well, if so, I've never found one I liked as much as the one I created on CatBeast. Over at CatBeast.com, you can put anything you want on just about any kind of hat you like. It's easy and affordable to get exactly what you want. With CatBeast.com, you can create custom embroidered snapbacks, dad hats, baseball hats, and beanies from brands like New Era, 47 Brand, Champion, Nike, and more. CatBeast.com has no minimum sized orders. You can order one hat or you can order a hundred. That means you can design a one-off hat for your upcoming weekend trip, or you can get custom hats for your whole team or business. CatBeast.com enables you to design and wear a custom embroidered hat that shows your personality. Create a hat with a funny slogan, design a snapback that features your business logo, or even design a beanie that has your cat's face on it. Visit CatBeast.com. That's C-A-P-B-E-A-S-T.com and enter promo code MILLIONAIRE to get 20% off your first order. Because I want to go back to even when you started it. So you started it in 99 and you're about 32 or so? Yep, early 30s, yep. 
Okay. And so up till then, it seems like you had made decent money, but not, you know, game changing money because you still, I guess, were employed by people. But this was your first real company, right? Like, That's correct. Okay. And so when you started up, can you just walk us through, you know, starting your first company? Because this is exciting for anybody, what you did wrong, you know, how much money you had saved up personally. And, and then also, were you married at this point? Just give us a little bit more feedback on that before we jump about selling it. Sure. I got married when I was 27. So, and then in one of the companies I had tried starting, that's another long story. I ended up uh, getting transferred back to the East Coast. I met my wife in California. We got married literally the day after we got married. We moved back to the Baltimore area. I was from Northern Virginia. And so I was working there and went through those various jobs. And when I started Cyberbills, we were back in California. That was four, five, six years later and was back in there. And I didn't have much money. We were living you know, paycheck to paycheck for the most part. My wife was working, had a good job and we were doing well. And I think we had just had our first child right around that time, my son, Sam, but I didn't have any money. And one of the things I've never used my own money to start companies. Now you pay the penalty on that because you don't own as much when you use other people's money. But I've always believed I didn't have a lot of money. I'm going to use the people that do have money. So <laughs> how that got started was... I had this idea with my friend who worked, his name was Murley Chirala, an Indian fellow, went to Rice University, really, really smart technologist. And we drew up the idea on the back of an envelope and we said, this is something that can work. And so we actually created the prototype ourselves. We were able to do it ourselves and make it actually work. And that didn't cost us any money. It was just our weekend times that we were doing that together. But we got a hold of a gentleman by the name of Jorge Del Cavo. He was an attorney for Pillsbury, which is one of the big firms that was taking all these Silicon Valley companies public. And so we met with him at a breakfast and showed him our concept on this paper napkin. And he was like, I like what you're doing. I see it. We can get you public. It's going to take a little bit of time and work. You guys don't have any infrastructure behind you, but I'll make you the introductions. So he started making us introductions to people that he had worked with in his previous, all these other companies. And we got a, what do you call him? An angel. We got an angel to give us a million dollars. And then we got a couple more angels. And then it just started going from there. But we really relied heavily on this attorney that knew his way around Silicon Valley to help us out. And before we knew it, we had closed a couple rounds worth 10, $20 million. When I look back and you said, what would I have done differently or what did I do wrong? I didn't really do that much wrong, except when I look back, I think it would be nice to have strategic investors earlier on. And I think I would have relied more on strategic investors along the way when I look back. But you got to do what you got to do to get the thing. You know, At the end of the day, you're trying to build a company and you have to Whatever opportunity you can get to get to you the money you need, you have to go when you don't have that resource yourself. And tell us the difference between a strategic investor and was a financial investor? I don't know if the other term would be. Yeah, financial investor. You know, financial investors are people that bring money, but they don't bring you any other value generally. You know, they'll say they do, but that's really they're bringing you money and business sense. But strategic investors are people that you align with to actually distribute and sell your product and enhance your product. So Intuit 
came in and we were building a product for Intuit. We were building a product for Wells Fargo. Those were our two, and Texaco as well. We were building a product for Texaco for their accounts payable division of their business. So they come in, they give you money, but they also expect something in return. And that just tightens the bond between a startup company or your company and their company. So when things you know, are we allowed to swear on this show? Whatever the fuck you want to do. There we go. <laughs> okay, good. So when the shit hits the fan, they will stand by you generally, right? They understand it's not just about the money. It's about the business. It's about people. Whereas the financial investors, you know, one of our financial investors was GE Capital. And I couldn't tell you how fast they ran for the hills. It was disgusting, quite frankly, when the shit hit the fan. So that's your big difference is align your, you know, you got to have, sometimes you got to have both. But I have found, especially when I got to building Patra, I pretty much relied on strategic investment only. Okay. So again, just getting this right. Could you have almost all strategic investors? I know you said maybe you need a little bit of both, but I don't know if you give them a discount for investing as well, but like a strategic investor, like you were saying, is a company that actually needs your product too. So no matter what, at least you're getting a customer there. It sounds like, am I understanding that correctly? And that's correct. You're lining yourselves up to get revenue from that investor. And they'll also teach you about the business that you're getting into, right? They will provide you resources. And so their interests are aligned for you to succeed because they've made an investment. So therefore, because they've made an investment, they don't want that investment to fail, but they're also made that investment because they're planning on using you. So they will help you always to the sun to make certain that you succeed. And so do they get better terms as well, generally, or no, or because I don't know, like the G right. capital, if they're investing money versus into it, if you can, I know it's been a while, so I don't know if you necessarily remember, or if you're raising money today, like, is that put into the term sheet or just tell us a little bit about that? Generally, I'm trying to remember here, but it has been a while, as you said, but you know, even what I deal with today, usually when you are doing your investment, you're looking at the terms are going to fit the environment with which you're in. So if you've got a strategic investor, they're going to negotiate knowing that they're going to give you business and they're going to give you learnings, but the financial people are going to give you other things and they're going to negotiate for that. At the end of the day, you're negotiating for the best terms that you can get for your company, understanding what you have to give up to get what you need there. So it's all about what leverage point you're in and you have to evaluate the situation you're in. So we just did a deal at Patra, you know, a couple of years ago where it was a half strategic and a half investor. But I would say the strategic drove the deal more than the investor did. Yeah. And so you started, is it cyberbills.com? Yeah. I'm actually looking at the Wayback Machine so I can even see it. The way, oh yeah. Jeez. Yeah. That was cyberbills.com. That's right. Okay. Like how long did, did it take for, I guess you and your co-founder, if you will, to like make the product? Cause it's different from like making this product and then I guess going to raise money and trying to sell it. Yeah. It probably took us a couple months to build it and test it and see if it actually worked in real production. And it did. And we did it for ourselves, right? That was the beauty of our product. It was change the address of our bills and have it go to this lock box or PO box, if you will. And then we scanned it and up on the page came the bills. And then we just got some other friends and family to try it. You know, the whole business, we got up to the point where we were going to go public in about two and a half years. It was a rocket ship. So we went out and raised money within a few months of actually building the product. And then it was just a cycle after that because we were just growing so rapidly. Well, how are you guys going to actually make money? What was your margin? Like, I guess I can understand now it makes sense to me why, especially Intuit would want this, right? It's just easier for them, people to get bills online, I guess, Wells Fargo, sure. you said as well. But how about you as a company at cyberbills.com? How are you going to actually make money on this? 
Well, we were providing the services. Our whole point was to provide the back office engine to the banking industry. So Wells Fargo was incorporating our platform into their bill pay. So they were going to pay us for that. And there was probably an implementation fee and a transactional fee for everything that went through that they would pay us for. And whether they charged their customers or not, that was up to them. So we were trying to go get those deals, but it was chicken and the egg. Right. They were like, how do you know people will even sign up for it? Uh, this is one of my biggest mistakes. We had to create our own bill pay platform for the consumers to use. And so we were out there actually marketing and spending a lot of our money we raised. We were marketing our own platform to prove that people would actually sign up for this and pay for it because it wasn't cheap. You can imagine, you know, receiving these bills, opening them up, scanning them. There's a lot of manual effort that had to go in there. We had people in India correcting the data from the OCR. So we had to, you know, we were charging like a, anywhere from seven to $11 a month for people to have automated bill pay. And <laughs> this was one of my biggest mistakes when I look back. I've always been like 10 steps ahead of the industry. And so when I thought about what we were doing, I was like, wow, this is a platform that we could really do more than just bill pay. We could really manage people's lives. But that was back in the 90s, way advanced for its time. But nevertheless, I went to a marketing firm. And this is one of my other things is these people all think they know way better than you do. And they'll give you all this advice. And you got to go with your gut a lot because they give you advice that is for shit. So we went to this marketing firm and they're like, call this platform you're building to sell these bills, statusfactory.com, because it's about the status of your life. And we're the factory that keeps your status going. Who the hell knows what logic it was at the time? So we created this platform called Status Factory to pay your bills. And people are like, what the hell was that name? And so we're out there trying to market this, spending millions of dollars on billboards and TV ads and everything. But we did get a growing base of customers using our platform. And at the same time, we had two other companies emerge Ironically, I think independently, I don't know this for sure. One was called Pay Trust and one was called Pay My Bills, which their names were much more in line with what they were doing. And they were more of a marketing engines. So they were out there selling. So the three of us all had this weird time in our history where we were out there selling bill pay and everyone was signing up for it. And so the banks really wanted a platform to do that. And we were the ones providing the platform. So we were focused on the platform behind the scenes, not so much the front part. And so who did you say? Well, I know you had a different co-founder for Hatra versus this, right? What was the one for this one? Yeah, so there were two Indian guys. Murli Chirala was the main one. He came over with me pretty quickly. And the other one was Shankar Srinivasan. We were the three that really got it going. Okay, yeah, because I'm with the statusfactory.com now. Have you been there? <laughs> no, what the heck is even there? I was hoping it was your partner. His name's Clint Arthur. He's a celebrity entrepreneur. <laughs> I'm going to it now. You have to check this out because this is why I made the podcast because of guys like this. <laughs> What the heck does he do? A He's a million dollar business accelerator, quote unquote, his MBA. Oh, okay. You can apply now. Okay. That's okay. I'm sure it only costs a couple hundred thousand. That's right. I always find it interesting when these people are always willing to give advice on how to build a business. I'm like, go build a business. Thank you. That's why we're having you on. Anytime I think that every time I'm like, well, you could just prove it and what build a business. Right. <laughs> you know, instead right. of telling me if how you're going to teach people how to like be really good at lifting weights or whatever, go do it. Right. Yeah. It just always amazes me how people make money on giving advice. I have to admit, I'm not a big podcast person. I find your podcast very interesting. I will admit that not just because I'm here and I'm kissing your ass, <laughs> but I did find that interesting, but I'm not, you know, Ted talks. I'm like, what? 
I just don't get it. I spend my time building the business. I don't have time listening to what other people think because everyone's experience is different. You have to go with what you got. And so when somebody's given you experience from the past, that was from their experience. And it's not going to line up with what your experience is. So there's interesting stories and all that, but I don't spend a lot of time listening to all those people. That makes two of us. So, well, yeah, that's the reason I had to ask. I didn't know if that was your partner who took no. over the domain. Yeah, your partner's a celebrity entrepreneur in case you didn't know. So. Yeah, no, I've never met this person. So. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah, I guess back to CyberBill. So, yeah, you made your own platform and then that was enough for Wells Fargo, I guess, to pay you or Intuit and all these guys to pay you like a retainer to start using your services? Were they paying us a retainer? I don't even remember how they were paying us at the time, but it was... Because from my perspective, it'd be hard, like, because again, you're 32, 33 at this point in time, right. you know, they're going to try to get the best deal they can. And it's not like you're just selling, you know, a widget and you need to make 10% markup or something like that, right? Like for this, it seems like it's kind of complicated to figure out the right pricing, you know, if these guys are going to give you money and be your partner. Trust me, every business I've done, it seems like it's hard to do the right pricing. But yeah, it was because we had to build development implementation fees. So they were paying us to build stuff. But for the most part, that's what the investors were for, to pay for building the platform. And then we were trying to build, we were pricing it, from what I recall, where if we got it in there, we would get paid on the transaction and there would be a transaction fee. And there were some transaction fees that were in the marketplace that we could use as comparables. You know, the, the transaction fee, I don't know if they still do it or not, but the company behind Bank of America's online checking was called Check Free out of, uh, I believe they were out of Virginia. And so they were being paid a transaction fee to manage their online checking that they were doing. So that was something we were able to look at in the market and say, okay, what are those fees? All right, we're doing extra fees. We're doing extra things beyond that. You know, So how much more can we charge that? You have to look at your cost, your transactional cost, and then you just do a markup. I mean, there is some math to it. Uh, it wasn't like sticking your finger in an air. But the hard part is always, how much do you charge them for the integration into their own platform? And they are going to try to squeeze you because they know you, they need you. And at this point, there weren't a lot of providers of this service out there. And when you've got Chase Bank, Wells Fargo, into it all wanting this service, we were in a little bit of a good position to set the pricing we needed to because we had several people banging down our doors. So yeah, I guess it was good that you're able to find a competitor. And I guess maybe even then you're calling around because I don't think it'd be hard to find that pricing or whatever their management fee online. Do you recall how you're able to figure that out? Management fee for, oh, for check for like check free. Yeah. They're your competitors. How much they were charging. God, I don't remember how we figured that out, but I'm sure that's what it was. I mean, cause it seems like, it, or maybe someone at Wells Fargo said this, what they charge there or whatever. But, yeah, it could be. But yeah, so that at least give you something. So it's not random. So okay, that's that, right. makes, that makes a lot more sense. So then it seems like things took off for two years, you said, and you wanted to sell. Well, we had to sell. We wanted to go public public yeah and we just missed that that was going to make me personally about 30 million dollars and that's one of the other interesting things i think your listeners might be interested in too and something i learned along the way you know i started off when we started the company we were you know i was 50 percent owner or 40 percent or whatever it was because there were three of us and then when you bring in these investors these big financial institution investors and you're about to go public they will cream you down to around five seven percent ownership if you don't have your own money in there and you don't have the leverage to withstand that. So really you become a hired gun, at least I did. I shouldn't say this is standard, but you become a hired gun when you go with these big financial institutions bringing you money up front because you need their money. 
And so they're like, okay, well, this is the dilution that happens and dilution occurs, but they won't let the CEO will typically not go below 5%. So that was something I learned and I used as my next logic when I got, when I started Patra later on, is that I wasn't going to try to hang on to 50% ownership if I'm using other people's money. Otherwise, it just couldn't happen. So what's important is getting in there and having a good percentage and then a good salary to pay you while you're going through your life. And so when you sold and you said the company was still able to stay together, did you make any money? It was like 2003, you said, I think around then? I think I got six months severance at that point. I could, probably could have stayed with the company, Medavante. They were a very large banking service provider company. Their competitor was Fiserv. So I probably could have stayed with them, but you know, I'm a CEO and I was just going to butt heads with other leaders. They needed to take it over and I was exhausted, literally exhausted because week after week trying to make payroll when you have no money and you had to try to find a way to make payroll. And Intuit and Texaco, to their credit, always stepped up and helped us make payroll until we were able to sell the company. And they got their money back for doing that. And so from there, what do you do? Did you take a break for a while? Because it sounds like you said you were burnt out. I was. I was totally burnt out. We just had our third child. My wife was working for a company called Veritas at one point during all this time when I was at Cyberbills. And I don't know if you know much about Veritas, but they were a company that went public it was a small company. They went public while she was there, I believe, or just before she got there. They ultimately sold to Symantec. But while she was at Veritas, with the dot-com crash happening, but before it happened, actually, we sold her stock. So we actually sold at the top of the market. Got very lucky there. Got enough money to live on for quite some time. And so she worked at Symantec and then went on and was working at Yahoo later in her career. She was the head of HR, not head, head of HR, but she was a senior director of international HR. And so- you became a stay-at-home dad? Exactly. So we just had our third child. We just moved into a new house. And so we're sitting there and hit the three kids. I'm taking them to daycare, doing all the thing. We do have a nanny at that point because we had some money from the stock sale. So we just bought this new house with a pool and a guy comes back to take care of the pool and he looks just like me. And I'm like, and he's there for like 10 minutes and I'm paying him whatever I'm paying him. I don't know, 150 bucks a month to take care of the pool. I was like, what's up with this? And he goes, well, this is interesting. The pool business, you buy routes off of other pool guys because they get overloaded. So you buy some of their, their, they call them routes, but their customers for essentially one times revenue. And then you go out there, you charge them for their monthly fee. You get to charge them for repairs and supplies. And there's a hundred percent markup on the supplies. And you know, you set your own hours, blah, blah, blah. So I bought a truck, bought some routes off of him and a partner of his and started servicing pools in the Palo Alto, Atherton, Menlo Park area of Silicon Valley. And I got, had up to like 70 pools at one point in time. And I would take the kids to daycare, get my truck, go do that. And then come home, pick up the kids and take care of dinner. It was a great way to settle my mind for a few years. And I did that for about four years. But in the third year, I blew my back out. I was in the backyard of a customer. All of a sudden, I bent over to pick up something. And then I was flat on the ground. And I couldn't move for like weeks or months after that. It was a really bad blowout. It is actually a very physical job. It's a hard job. But except for my back, I was in the best shape of my life. I was frosting my hair. My wife was all excited. I was tan all the time. And I was pretty relaxed. I did, believe it or not, during that time, start another company or attempted another company called Babysitter Exchange. You can look that up because I had kids. All the companies I started along the way were always companies that revolved around what I was doing at the time. I started Cyberbills because I was trying to pay bills online. 
I started Babysitter Exchange because I had kids and I wanted to exchange babysitting with other people and I didn't want to keep paying babysitters to come in. You became a pool man because you wanted your pool clean. That's right. And I needed something to do. I had started a company called, uh, what was it called? It was, uh, oh, a time accountant. And we were one of the first PDAs to track time for consultants and lawyers and stuff. I had started a company called Registrar because I was getting married and I didn't like the way the registration systems were for your gifts. And I thought you could do something in the internet for birthdays and holidays and all that. So I had started several different companies along my career all around my life and, and my life events at that point in time. Patra was probably the only company that was not around that. That was a totally different thing. So at the end of three to four years with the pool, I ended up selling the pool because I couldn't do it anymore. And I tried to do the employee thing. That's really hard to do in the pool business. Well, yeah, before we move on today, many small business owners are busier than ever. Time spent searching for and interviewing candidates can take time away from managing and growing a business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get the candidates worth interviewing faster. And it's free. There's nothing better than making the right hire. And the faster you make the right hire, the faster you can get back to listening to this very podcast. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Focus on candidates with the skills and experience you need. Use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster. Did you know every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash millionaire. That's linkedin.com slash millionaire to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You know, when it comes to your next business read, you do have options. You could pick up that trendy new buzzwordy business book, or you could learn the timeless buzzword free lessons of a straightforward modern classic. I'm talking about Good Profit by Charles Koch, a CEO with a real world track record of decade upon decade of actual exponential business growth. Want the lessons from someone who's actually done it? Start by visiting goodprofitbook.com. That's goodprofitbook.com. Yeah. How much were you bringing in when you were being the pool man? I was probably bringing in 50 to 70 grand a year, maybe. It wasn't a ton. It is a cash cow, but I was working four hours a day. So yeah. And you're outside. Like sometimes you just need that much of a change. Like you said, you're burnt out, but I meant like when you're inside working on computers the whole time, just doing something different, right? You're not doing it for the money necessarily. It's like, again, like that brain space, you're not like hustling and over a computer staring at a screen all the time. Yeah. It was a good time in my life. I will admit that it was just part of my journey. And I look back and I really enjoyed what I did during that time. During that point in time, can you remember, were you thinking, hey, I'm just going to probably keep doing this or you're just thought in your mind, I'm going to keep doing side businesses till another one takes off? I had always said, you know, I need my brain to relax. I need my creative juices to come back and the next opportunity will come about. They'd happened so many times in my life. And so I was like, something will pop. But right now the kids need my attention and I need my own attention. So it came time. 
my brain started coming back. I was like, I want to get back into the action again. And the other reason I went to the pool thing was like, who was going to hire a CEO at that time of a failed.com? Wasn't even really failed, but a dot-com industry failed. And so I knew that I wasn't even going to find a job at that time. So I called the gentleman who brought me up to Seattle. He ended up working for Ask Jeeves. Remember that during the day of all the different search companies? What are you up to now these days? And he said, funny, I just got called by a friend of mine, a friend of ours, actually. He was running a fund out of Chicago, a family fund, and he had an idea for the construction industry, a software idea for the construction industry. So he said he wanted me to look into, is this a viable idea? Would you like to work on that? He's going to pay us to do it. And I said, sure, why not? I love software. Let's go take a look at it. So we started looking at the software, understanding what his idea was, and then going out to the marketplace and testing the concept. And we ended up in an office of a friend of mine from the CyberBills days. And he's the president of a WL Butler, a company that builds all the Costco's, Targets, and Best Buys in California. So a very large construction company. And he said to me, or us, he said, oh, that software idea has been done. Don't even waste your time on it. But you know what's a real pain in the ass? And he points to the corner of the room. And in the corner of the room is a, believe it or not, an old fax machine. At the time, it wasn't old, I guess. And this was, what, seven, 16 years ago? And it's spewing off certificates of insurance. And he goes, that's a real pain in the ass for us. Fix that. So we started looking at that and going, okay, what is this problem and who's got this problem and looked at contractors and it was a problem for them, but it wasn't a big enough problem that I could really roll it up into something big or big enough. And I said, I remember asking the question, who's creating all these certificates? And the answer was, well, insurance brokers are creating these certificates. And it turns out my partner, Dan Easterlin, his next door neighbor, Riley Benford, worked for, I can't believe I remember all these names after all these years, but worked for Heffernan Insurance Brokers. And Heffernan Insurance Brokers was a large regional broker out of the California, Northern California area that focused a lot on construction types of insurance. So he got us an appointment with a gentleman there that manages a large portion of their business. And we're sitting around and I'll never forget, we were in the basement of a dim sum restaurant in San Francisco. And we're sitting around talking about these certificates and the problem around them. And the one gentleman says, you know, I always wondered, why can't these things just be done in India? And I said, well, they can because I have India experience. I know people there. I know the way they work. We can make that happen. So one thing led to another and he got us appointment in with the COO of Heffernan Insurance Brokers who then got us to Mike Heffernan. And I kid you not, this was a 10 minute conversation, maybe 20 minutes with Mike Heffernan. And we described what we could do with these certificates of insurance, doing them out of India. And Mike's very entrepreneurial. And he said, well, you guys know Jack about insurance. And so I'll give you some money, I'll get you the business, and I'll give you the training if you build this for us. And I'll give you a salary and we'll be partners in all this. So Mike and Heffernan became a partner in all this. And I'll never forget, he goes, how much money do you need? And I'm not going to go through the specific dollar amounts, but I gave him a dollar amount. And he goes, okay, I'll call you in a couple of weeks. So he called me in a couple of weeks and he goes, I can get you a quarter of what you needed. What can you do with that? And I was like, well, not much because we were already going to do this bootstrap, but I'll get you a pilot. He said, go for it. So I ran off to India. I called my previous Merle Chirala from Cyberbills. I need to get to India. You need to help me find a location where we can do this. He goes, well, it turns out his sister-in-law 
who worked for me at Cyberbill. She's a dual citizen, U.S. and India. She had just moved back to their hometown to take care of her aging parents and went into that town. It was a third tier town in India. It's called Vishaknaputnam. They call it Vizag for short. It's on a beach. It's on the east coast of India, uh, above Chennai. And it's a beautiful town, but it's India. And we went looking around and I could tell you some of the stories of there were no really good facilities there. I remember going into one, a couple of places I went in to visit to say, okay, can you get us some employees to work on this pilot? Went into one place. It was like a sweatshop, dark people working off the old green screen CRTs. You know, they're shimmering and shaking. There are two people sitting on a computer. It's hotter than hell. And in the corner of the room was an air conditioned office with the label on the door, CEO. And the guy's just sitting back while his sweatshop employees were working. I literally almost threw up at that point. I was like, well, you'll never get our business. Went to another place. They were just building it out. Uh, you couldn't tell what was going to be there. And we said, well, where's your backup generator? And he goes, oh, that's out here. We go out there. It's literally like a dog shed with a lawnmower engine in it that he starts up. He says, this is our backup. I was like, oh my God, this we're never going to find this. But we did find a place, a gentleman that lived in Simi Valley, California, also lived in India, and he had set up a very nice office that could house about 25 people. He had about 12 in there at the time, and we were able to hire four employees. We used him as a, they call it a bot, a build, operate, transfer. So he helps you build your business. Now, his goal was always to be part of our business, but we started and he goes and he hires the employees. He provides you the facility and you provide the management of those employees. So he does all the HR work, the payroll, all that. So we hired those four people and we started doing certificates of insurance for Mike. I flew back after I got that going to do two things. One was to start building the business and get some investors, get other customers, but also the certificates of insurance that were built in India or put together in India, they have to be mailed out if they could not be emailed, which still today, believe it or not, a lot end up in the mail. So I needed to print and mail these certificates. Well, where was I going to do that? Could didn't have any money to do all this. So I ran a long extension cord to my back shed in my backyard and got a little Epson printer and started printing these certificates of insurance. And that turns into a whole automated thing that today generates probably over $10 million worth of business in this printing and mailing area. So I was literally working out of my shed day and night, hot, no air conditioning, no heat. And when I had to go on trips, I would hire across the street was an elementary school and they had a daycare in there. And I would hire the people that worked the daycare in between the beginning of the school and the end of the school, when they were taking care of the kids, they would come over and do the printing and mailing for me on a part-time basis. So that's how we got the company started. Okay. Oh yeah. We've got a lot of questions. I guess I definitely want to go back to India, but to make sure we're on the same page first, this certificate of insurance, I don't understand this thing has to be printed off and you are sending it out. Like, can you make sure we totally understand what this is and you know, why you couldn't, because it's what we're talking about, 2005, 2006. Right. So you could email then, right? Everyone was kind of emailing, right? There was emails, but so there's two, there's actually three constituents that need to receive this certificate, this proof of insurance. Okay. So when you, so that's why, so that's part of it. So one is called the insured. That's the company that has the insurance. So if you're a carpet layer and you have insurance and you're going to go work on a big apartment building, you need to get the apartment building owner that cert. So you're the insured and you got to get that insured. So 
you get a copy of that certificate. Now that they can email because the broker knows your email address easily. Then there's the holder. The holder is the apartment building owner that's asking for this certificate. Well, you may or may not know their email address. And then if you're a carpet layer, you may have a hundred apartment buildings you work for, right? So there's these hundred. And when your insurance renews at the end of the year, you have to send those hundred apartment buildings a cert again. Are you going to know all those email addresses? You know, is the broker keeping track of all those? So the brokers just found it easier to say, you know what, mail them. And so they go in the mail. The third constituent is the carrier themselves, the people that underwrite the insurance. They don't actually really want them, but for liability purposes, sometimes they require that they get them. So there's these th different constituents you have to send these out to. A ton of envelopes. You wouldn't believe the inefficiency around it. And we're actually releasing some technology to help with that right now. But yeah, that's how that got going. Oh, yeah, thank you for that example, because I had no clue that I thought maybe if the carpet, the guy who's laying carpet in all these different apartments, let's say around Jacksonville, that he just needed his one, right? I guess maybe as proof, but you're saying that if he's on a contract basis with all these rolling every year, basically all those people want a copy too. They don't trust that just what he showed right. is actually legit. Yeah, that and on top of it. So these contractors have contracts that you are signing up for that say, here are our insurance requirements. And if contractor A wants a million dollars liability and contractor B wants a half a million dollars, you're not going to give contractor B that you have a million dollars in liability limits, right? You're going to give them that you have a half a million because that's all they're requiring. So each certificate is unique to who is asking for it. Oh, okay. So yeah. Okay. So each one, okay, I got you. Right. I guess I just didn't even know, understand this was a problem. Neither did I. That's what's so amazing. I had no clue either. And so the guy who pointed to the fax machine in the corner, was he saying, again, the whole problem, can you just walk us through the problem that he said and then how you were going to fix this? I, I mean, I understand, I guess, the problem now, but like how he even presented it to you. Right. Well, we didn't really solve his problem, quite frankly. He wanted so, to get rid of the fax machines. <laughs> he wanted to get rid of all the coordination of all the certificates that he has a staff member just managing all these certificates. So there is actually software out there. Several companies run these programs and services because you can't just, it still involves people, which they call certificate tracking. And that is keeping track of all the certificates you've requested, do they meet the requirements and do they renew? And is there certificates in place? And if they don't meet the requirements, you have to reject it. And there's a whole process around it. So there's several companies out there that do that. Uh, we actually do that service as well as part of our services that we offer. So that problem is in itself a solution. But we ended up finding another problem, which was that the people generating these certificates, the brokers were spending and still do spend a lot of money and a lot of time, and they made a lot of errors doing it. So we were able to set up a process, allowed us to get them done very, very quickly over in India because we have people dedicated to just generating these certificates all day long. That's all they do, generate certificates. They don't have 20 other things on their plate that they have to do like the brokers themselves do. We also set it up in a way that it's almost being built like a manufacturing line. So it's got extremely high quality. And then of course we can do it you know, less costly because we're doing it out of India. And so before, would a broker spend just maybe like even half his day trying to get these renewed insurance things out to the right people? And then by using you guys, he almost didn't have to worry about that anymore? That's exactly right. So a broker, oh, now there's different size brokers, right? There's brokers that are kind of do everything themselves. Those are the real small independent ones. And then you've got the larger brokers. They're still independent, but they 
are large corporations that have staffs of people. So within an insurance company, you have your people that go out there and sell insurance. Those are called producers. And then you've got your account managers that actually do all the working with the customer once they've been sold insurance to fulfill their request. And there's lots of things that they need to do. They need to download documents from the carrier all the time. They have to check the policies to make sure they're accurate. They have to generate certificates of insurance. There's a myriad of tasks that they're always doing, these account managers. And so when we started doing the certificates, it took one thing off their plate. And the brokers pay these account managers a lot of money because they're licensed people, you know, insurance licensed people to do this work. So they're paid well. And then we were able to take this one element off their desk, which they didn't like doing anyway. It was just always a hassle. So today we generate about 4 million certificates a year for our customers. How much did you do, like say that first year? Oh, a thousand, <laughs> a couple thousand, 5,000. You know, it obviously started off with just a few. And then within the first year, we're probably doing maybe 10,000 certs if we were lucky. And was it called the Patra Corp then? Patra. So the name comes from Patra and we couldn't get Patra.com. So I had to go with PatraCorp.com. But Patra, I remember the first guy out of Chicago that started this whole thing, he invested a little bit of money with us as well. And he said, well, what's the Hindi word for certificate? And Patra, and I can't roll my R's. I'm not very good at rolling R's, but so if you can do it, just pronounce Patra with a rolling R at the end. And, uh, but anyway, so Patra began as Sanskrit for leaf. And then that became parchment, which became paper, which became document. And so Patra is the closest word in Hindi to certificate. Gotcha. All right. <laughs> in Hindi, is that what they write in India? Well, India is very interesting because India, you've got Hindi is like the national language, like you would think English is here. But then you have all these dialects that are regional. I mean, hundreds of them, if not thousands. And so there's all these regional pockets. And so in Vizag, where we are, people speak Hindi, but they also speak Telugu, which is the local language. And so they'll speak that more than they will Hindi. And then they also know English as well. So they basically know three languages. Well, I know that's the same in the Philippines too. Yep, right? exactly. Because I met some of my workers there and like certain islands, they have different dialect, which it's not like just having a Southern accent. Right. No, it's a, it's a whole different language. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is crazy, right? That have that many different languages. Yeah, it truly is. And that's why it's so hard as a country, they struggle to communicate well with each other because of that. Oh, okay. I didn't even think about that. Okay. Especially if they just get used to, and you said that they use their primary language, whichever one's regional versus the national. That's right. And some of those people, you know, you consider a lot of the people are uneducated people, right? I mean, that's 1.3 billion people. So many are uneducated. They don't even know Hindi or English. They just know their local dialects. So can you imagine trying to roll out a national program to track, you know, even doing the census is a nightmare. In fact, I know one of the guys that built the census stuff for India. He was out of the Healthion company I worked for. So when you started Patra, then when you went over, I guess maybe it was before you even went to India, because I want to focus a little bit about that, because that sounds pretty interesting to me. But did you have to have software built at all or anything basic? And did you do it or did you have some programmers do it? Like, what did you do to get it off the ground? Oh, so this is a funny story. Again, not funny. haha. -ha. So it really was about people. And so it's about infrastructure with the people so that they could log into the systems of the broker to get the work done. But what we needed was a tracking software to track the work that was being requested and the work that was being done 
and the work that was completed, right? So I needed something to track this software. So again, we didn't have any money, totally bootstrapped company. So we found a product called DataTrack on the internet. I did some searching and I was looking for something that would receive an email and break apart that email and put it into a database. Now that seems like that would be simple to do. Right. But I couldn't find any product that actually did that, except I found this that was relatively priced. I couldn't even find any product, period. But I found this one little product called Data Track and it cost me $750. And, you know, the guy on the website said, you know, Coke used it and other things. I was like, okay, this is interesting. Called him up. He was great. I could tell it was a small company. We set it up to track these emails. So, so the email would come in. It reminded me of my DBase days. I was able to program this software, set it up and configure it so that the email would come in. It would break it apart. I established the fields. We would track this data that would go through and it had some rule. I could put rules around it. So we start that and we've got our first customer, our second customer, our third customer. It's getting a little bit more complicated and the system's starting to break down a lot. It's just not working as much as it used to. And he would be very responsible at first and then he stopped being responsive and so Dan and I were down in Simi Valley visiting the guy from India and on our way back we were driving through and I said well the business address says it's an arrested I can't pronounce the name but arrested Dittero or arrested I can't pronounce it in India and no in in this is in California okay <laughs> so we're traveling back up from Southern California to Northern California. I was like, let's just stop through this guy's town, go to his office and see what's up. Why is he not servicing us? Because <laughs> you've been pretty like happy, go lucky so far, but that's our pissing you off if you're like, you have something built on this and it's not working. <laughs> right. It's not working. So, so we drive through and we're following the GPS to his address. And, you know, we go out of the business district and all of a sudden we're in the residential area. And I was like, okay, this is the address. So we go up and knock on the door. And his mom walks out in a moo-moo. I was like, well, where's Brad? She's like, oh, he's in the garage playing video games. So that was my first experience with that. And I'm like, oh my God, this kid just built this stuff on the fly and it's not scalable. We cannot go with this thing. So I started then looking for my next product that would handle this. Again, no money. Well, real quick before, I was curious, how old was Brad? I forget what his name was, but... Did you meet him or no? Yeah, I think he came out. I'm not even sure if he came out, but because at that point, it just didn't matter, right? You know, um, I would say it was probably like 17, 18 in there. You know, good for him, right? You know, he created this product and, and it did work, but he just, you know, he was moving on with his life. And so... He had to play Halo. That's right, to play Halo. So I... So I was like, okay, we got to go to the next thing. So the next thing, I, so I started doing more digging and came across a product called QuickBase. This was one of the questions you asked, one of the products that was transformative. So QuickBase was, believe it or not, owned ironically by Intuit. They had just bought it. And that's why it was called QuickBase. So that was a very DBase-like product. You could go in there, you could build your database, you could create structures, you could create views, reports, all that. And I could do all that. I could program all that myself because I'd had previous experience doing it. So it was, I was a quick study to do all that. But what it couldn't do was break apart the email coming in to the system. So I did some digging, called some consultants of QuickBase around and got referred to a gentleman 
who hooked me up with a product called Email2DB out of Europe. And he said, I can work with this product. It will break apart the email and then I can interface into QuickBase and put and insert the data in. I said, go for it. Whatever I paid him a few thousand dollars to do that, bought the Email2DB. And before I knew it, I had this platform that was now owned by Intuit. So I knew it was going to be a scalable product. But I made some decisions at that point in time. And here's, some again, some of the, something I think maybe your listeners are might be interested in. There's certain decisions you make as a business owner when you're starting a company that you know you're kicking the can down the road, that you know you're going to create a bigger problem down the road, but you don't have necessarily have the money to do it right or the reason. Now, so I've got multiple customers that I've got their data coming into me. It's insurance information. It's sensitive. Nobody's going to want to see their data show up in somebody else's database right? I just, I couldn't risk. And I didn't have programmers to make certain that the security was going to be strong enough. And what QuickBase allowed me to do was create these very small independent databases. So every application was different. Well, so you had a different database for each app? Not only for each customer, but for each service that we were doing. If we were doing certificates, that would be an app. Then there would be another database for policy checking and another one for downloading or whatever. And then another customer would have another set. So I knew I was kicking this can down the road, but it ensured that I had solid security for each of my customers in an early days when I couldn't afford one screw up. And so we're building this QuickBase. I'm designing it. I go to India, work with the people there to understand the workflow. I'm building all this out. So this is starting to become one of my full-time jobs besides getting new customers, running the print shop, and trying to make certain we had enough money to keep the business going. Is I'm building this application in QuickBase and it's becoming very sophisticated. Every customer, every app, and it's, you know, starts off with four or five apps and then it's, you know, 10, 20 apps and it's growing bigger and bigger. And along the way, I also created, remember I mentioned Time Account in a product I built years ago. I took that concept and I built that into QuickBase to keep track of the time that people in India were spending. So they're all like tracking every little microsecond that's hitting the database over and over and over again, probably millions of times in this QuickBase system. And I remember I was on vacation and it seems like every time I was on vacation and QuickBase was great, but it would go down periodically and we would be shut down. We couldn't do work when that was shut down and it, it would go down like I was on the beach in North Carolina on vacation with my family it would go down for like three days. And I'm trying to explain to our customers what the heck is going on. We're trying to do this work manually. Just a total nightmare that was happening during that time. But another vacation I was on on a cruise and Intuit calls us up or QuickBase and says, you guys are using way too much of our processing. Your system is like accounting for like four or 10% of our total processing power. And if you don't bring that down or fix it within the next four days, your fee is going to go from $4,000 a month to $40,000 a month. I was like, thanks for the warning, right? You know, oh my God, what are we going to do? So I spent the rest of my vacation. We were like having to make adjustments to get that down. And uh, so we managed to limp along there for a couple of years. They only would allow you so many people that were active on the system at one point in time. Well, I ran my operations in India 24-7. I had hundreds and hundreds of people by that time. So we literally had to pay people to activate people for one shift and then deactivate them for another shift and activate the other group and all that. And so we had to deal with that until we could get off that system, which took us several years to then find another tool set that we then built out and went through that. And then we've now gone through one other conversion to a fully scalable solution now. So I had to kick that can down the road one piece at a time until I could fix it and had enough money to fix it once and for all. 
So as you're like switching these systems, wherever you're keeping your databases, do you have to bring all the old information or do you kind of like let it fizzle out, especially over time? It seems like how much information you have on right. there. I was just curious. I never even really thought about this before. You know, when we switched off of QuickBase and went to the new platform, our third platform, that's when we combined the databases. And so at that point, the database was the database. And yes, we converted a lot of data, but I'm sure there was a lot of data we didn't need anymore. I did keep all the financial records and all that that happened. So that maintained through from the beginning of time. And were you still kind of like in charge of making sure all this went well? Like, I'm again, because I don't know what the size of your company is at, at this point, like how much you're actually physically doing some of this stuff online or whatnot versus like just directing people on your company. Yeah. I mean, I think at some point I stopped being involved in QuickBase day to day. There were some people that I hired to deal with that and they made the adjustments to QuickBase and dealt with all the people over in India. So I would say that was probably around the 2000, maybe after like five years or so, I kind of was able to get out of that. That doesn't mean that I still wasn't involved in all the decision-making of what needed to happen with all that. And I understood what was happening and the pros and cons. Yeah. I mean, there's just a point in your career where you have to switch from doing all the stuff and be more the director, especially as your company's grown to the size it has today. So, sure, right. mean, so like how long did it take to actually, do you mind if we talk about India a little bit more? Sure. Because I'm curious, you actually going over there, were there any other highlights of like, I guess you told us you went around and were trying to find a place for your employees that first couple didn't seem to work out. But after you finally found one, like how long were you actually over there and getting everyone set up and whatnot? So when I went over there, we visited three cities. You know, Vizag was the first one and we had people in town there. And then I went to Hyderabad and I went to Chennai. And the funny story about Hyderabad was I go up and, and that was a much more developed, you know, tier one city. Hyderabad was big during the dot-com days. So I go in there and there's this beautiful building that's, I walk around, they're showing, giving me a tour. And there's hundreds of workstations just empty sitting there with nothing going on them. And they're like, these are available for you. And I was like, okay, well, I need a few people. But they go, okay, let's go in this conference room. We'll sit down and talk about it. Well, this conference room was the size of the Taj Mahal. It was so huge and they had all these people sitting around. There were like three of us sitting around one end and there was an army of people sitting around the other end. And one's, you know, like I'm Six Sigma this and I'm process engineer this and I'm QA this and, you know, and all these people. And the guy walks in and it's like he had to make this big presence and he's just dripping in gold jewelry. And it's the white dude, you know, used to work at GE. He was relocated to India and he's just comes in and he's just like the big boss, you know, almost like gangster boss. And he's sitting there trying to sell us on why we should use them. And I looked at my partner, Murley, at the time and, I, and he looked at me, he said, don't do it. And I said, I got to do it. And I just stood up and I said, look, guys, when I look around this room, all I see is overhead, 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 overhead. I said, we are a small company. We're trying to get started. I can't afford what you guys are trying to do here. I mean, it was just ridiculous. So I think they wanted to, I can't even remember how much they wanted to charge, like $11 an hour for the people there. And, you know, in Vizag, we could set up for a fraction of the cost. So those other two locations didn't work. Once I figured out where we needed to go, I was probably only over there for a week or so, a couple of weeks. I would go back frequently, but my business partner, Dan, and his brother, so Dan would be over there for a, a month or so at a time. And then Matt, his brother, chose to, not chose, we asked him to move over there for a year. So he was just fresh out of college. And so he didn't have 
really, you know, didn't have a girlfriend or didn't really have a life going on and didn't have a job. So he's like, yeah, I'll go over there and live. So he lived over there for about a year and a half, got to learn the culture and they absolutely love him over there to this day. And then after a year and a half, it was time for him to come back. He had been over there long enough. And so we needed somebody else on the ground over there. I couldn't go over there. I had young kids and- And pools to clean. Well, yeah, that's right. Pools to still clean. And Dan had been <laughs> over back and forth so much. And he was like, I can't go over there and live there. And so we called our buddy out of Chicago and he started doing some searching for us. And he came across a gentleman that had posted his resume to the old guys network. I didn't even know such a thing existed. So he was, I think he was 55 at the time and he had just lost- all his money. He had just gone through, you know, he got into what was called Alpha Graphics, which is like a UPS store, like a Kinko's. And he had invested, it was a franchise. He invested all his money in there and they went out of, you know, it went all belly up. The whole system did. So he lost his whole life savings. And he was an Indian for Indian descent, came over in his college years, went to college here and just had totally Americanized himself. Nicest guy in the world, very did meditating, Buddha, all that stuff. But he had no insurance experience, no really operational experience. But I was like, hey, if you're willing to go over there, have at it. We'll hire you to go over there. So I took a chance on him and he's like, hey, if you can help me get back on my feet, I'll do it. So he went over there for about a year and a half. And so I would go over there, Dan would go, we'd all go over there and work with him periodically. But he became the next Matt over there for another year and a half. And tragically during that time, I remember I was in Virginia visiting my brother, July 4th holiday weekend. I get a call from his daughter and she's like, I need to get a hold of Nazir. His name was Nazir. And his son... He was in an accident, and so I immediately called Nazir and just said, you know, I just bought you a first-class ticket. Come home. And because I had a brother that was lost when I was 16, I had a ton of sympathy for this, right? I mean, everyone does, but I have a deep understanding of what my father and my parents went through during that time. And I just said, I will pay your salary. Don't worry about it. You come back when you're ready to come back. I don't care how long it takes. I don't even want you to think about it. Just go take care of your family. And so about three months later, he called me back and said, I want to start working myself back in. And I want to go back to India and, and start that. Can I bring my other son with me? And so I said, yes. So he went back there and I built an amazing amount of loyalty through that. But also I felt like I helped save a life. And, you know, he, to this day, he's retired now and calls me once, twice, three times a year just to check in and he's in a great space. But that's kind of some of the stuff we had to deal with. Yeah. And where are you located? My company is in Singapore, but I live in uh, Malaysia right now. Cool. Yeah. So why did you decide to become a member? You know, it was really uh, by chance that I stumbled upon your podcast. Yours just popped up. I said, okay, let me just try. And I like your interview style. I thought you asked good questions and I learned a lot. It was quite in-depth. So you mentioned about Patreon that I can get certain benefits. So when I looked into it, I said, okay, why not? I have really honestly already spent a lot of money that I didn't get any return from. I said, why not? I mean, in this journey, there's a lot of things that I spend money on, like the courses I bought, whatever. I said, why not? I just be a member and I get to speak to you and perhaps I can learn by having a one-on-one -on -one with you. Have you had a chance to listen to any of the past group calls or anything like that yet? Yeah, I've listened to a couple of them. Even if somebody had a business that was completely unrelated to anything I was doing, they were still throwing in invaluable nuggets of information just constantly. So I've been listening and, you know, I'd like to start getting in on some of the group calls. I'd like to start really engaging with other people in the community and just learning and devouring as much as I can.
Well, yeah, there's obviously even just not even loyalty with him. I'm sure other people recognize that too, right? So even though you weren't in India, I'm sure they heard about it through the grapevine. But I wanted to talk about India because then we started talking about did you already have the system built or not? So because I guess you told us like the next couple of years what happened there in India, but the system, did you actually have it built or not? Well, as I described from the beginning, you know, it was just an evolution of this system. So it just kept building. We call it Patra One today, but it was just built on these platforms and, and it just kept evolving and evolving. So, you know, the third system that we had in place, that was not during this time. These were the early years of data track and QuickBase that I'm referring to. Okay. The third system didn't happen until probably after 2012. And like even the very first people you were hiring, was it just dealing with faxes too? Like exactly what were the first few people doing? So an email would come in saying, please do a certificate for this customer. And they would get in so they would pick up off our queue, off of our system, what that we call it work order, what that work order wants them to do. So they'll open that up and they'll put in some information about what they're about to do. And then they'll go log in to our customer system, look up, you know, the customer that needs the cert, create the cert, QA the cert and then generate a PDF to be sent via email or mail. And along the way, our system puts it into queues as people would finish. So when they finish the cert, it would go into another queue where somebody would pick it up. And if it says fax it, they would fax it. If they said email it, they would email it. And if they said it needed to be mailed, they would send a PDF file to my printing and mailing center and it would get printed and mailed and then it gets closed. So then they go pick up another work order and that's what they do. People just keep working through the queue. So even from day one, and then now we can, I think it comes full circle where I kind of understand like what you've done is just added on to all these different things at Patra, I guess, to, but just understanding this basic, you know, thing, work implementation, what they're actually doing, I think helped me again, because it's kind of hard to figure it out exactly. Cause I didn't even know that this was a thing. And obviously you said you didn't either, but just like you're training those people to do versus the actual people who are making the back end with the database and whatnot that I guess you were doing that at home. I was doing all that. There wasn't anybody else. I was doing all that at the beginning. We were just training them on how to do the process and how to do data entry into our system. All right. Well, I guess from that year, I mean, what year did it all start? It was 2005, you're saying? Yeah, late 2005 is when we started the actual pilot. Okay. So I guess kind of walking us through the last 15 years or so, I mean, you did, I think, tell us about the first few years there in India and whatnot. Is there any other highlights or anything we should know as you've built up this company since then? Well, so we started, as you said, adding more and more services to what could be done in India. And then in 2012, and that just kept getting bigger and bigger. And I think one of the things that helped us tremendously was Mike helped us to go to this one conference called CIAB. That stands for Council of Independent Agents and Brokers. It's the largest lobbying group for the insurance industry where all the CEOs of all the big insurance carriers and brokers and all their COOs and all their spouses come together once a year. It used to be at the Broadmoor and now it's at, sorry, it's at the Broadmoor now. It used to be for the names escaping me in West Virginia, the Greenbrier. So it used to be at the Greenbrier, now it's at the Broadmoor. And you go there for three days and it's like speed dating, but for meetings. And so this was an opportunity and they didn't really allow vendors to go over it. There were only a few vendors allowed to attend it, but we got in and they really liked what we were doing and how creative we were with our solutions. And so we kept getting invited back, but you know, we just started building relationships with these brokers and the insurance industry is a very relationship business. And that's what I learned very early on. And that's what we focused on building these relationships that would take years to cultivate into customers. Yeah, there's no joke. I didn't even know they had this nice of things in West Virginia. This Greenbrier, 
Oh yeah. It's just insane looking. <laughs> this, this hotel is, I don't know. It's like a monster white house almost. It looks like. It really is. Well, and that's where a lot of the, you know, that's the getaway for a lot of politicians and stuff. It closed down. We were there for one year and then the Greenbrier went through a labor dispute. And so it closed down for a few years. And in the meantime, the CIAB changed to the Broadmoor in Colorado, which makes it a lot easier for us to get to because we're in California. So that was a huge moment for our company because that enabled us to get to the CEOs to do the decision-making to get customers. And we knew from day one, we really needed to focus on the large customers, the large brokers that could give us volume to do this work. So that's what we focused on was doing that. Well, were the first one more independent guys to make sure that your system would work? I mean, I understand like your thought process. Yeah. Eventually you want to get to the big guys, but what was in the beginning? Well, they were mid-size, mid to large, but the way we did it, it wasn't like you come in and you give us everything you've got. People would start with our customers and this is what I've always done my whole life. It's like, step your toe into the water. Just give us a few certs, prove that we can do it and we will scale with you. And because part of the problem is in one of the questions you asked, one of the challenges is customer adoption. While the CEO of a broker might say, hey, we want to use Patra, all the account managers need to, you know, basically, unless they're going to mandate it, they need to say, okay, I'm going to send this cert to Patra to be done. And some of them are like, I'm just going to do it myself, right? So getting these customers to actually, you know, start using us, it takes a lot of time to build that trust where they will send it to us. But we were working with large ones from the very beginning that would just give us one little office or an office and one account manager to work with. So it was very incremental work, very slugging it through for year after year just to add any kind of volume at a time. Like I said, it wasn't like we signed up USI and they said, okay, we'll give you 80% of our certs overnight. That took 10 years to get to that point. Did you ever get like bored or tired of doing this and thinking about going back to cleaning pools? <laughs> no, I never thought about going back to cleaning pools. No, I actually haven't gotten bored with this because the insurance industry, there's so much more to it than I ever realized. And so there's so many aspects that we haven't even touched. I think of the industry like a big thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. There are just literally all these little components and how complex it is when you think about business insurance and all the different types of businesses there are from marine types of businesses to construction to any, you know, hot air balloon, yoga, you name it. And the insurance is different for it and how it gets managed is different. And then you got personal lines, you got benefits, you got life insurance. And there's just so many aspects and it's treated so differently and there's different technologies for it. It's really an industry that is, it has taken a long time for it to adopt technology. And there is no real, I mean, there's some commoditization, but we're still a ways away from that. And do you do work with people who do home insurance too or car insurance? We do do some personal lines, but there's not as much back office work to do with that as there is with the commercial lines. Why is that? Because the personal lines, there's not much activity. You know, you've got a car and you got your home. With the commercial lines, you've got a lot of different insurances and it depends on the risk tolerance or the risk of what you're actually looking at. So a building that you're trying to insure for a business. So a business, you got to insure your property. You got to insure the DNO. You got employees. You got to insure. You got workers' comp. You got benefits. So there's a whole variety of insurances that you have within a business. And then let's say just look at a business itself. You've got two different companies right next door to each other. They have two different buildings. One might be a wooden building. One might be a concrete building. I mean, it's just so wildly different from one business to the next. Okay. So there's just so much more work for you and your opportunity, I guess, that you can help them versus you're saying, if I call, get a home insurance quote, their back end is already built in because it's just so simple for them to do a quote. 
yeah, the personal lines and your personal lines are generally your homeowners, your life insurance and your cars, right? And renter's insurance. So- and the other ones are called business lines? Or your no? commercial lines. Commercial lines. I see. I mean, I, yeah, I don't even know all these categories. Exactly. <laughs> Either did I, right? This has been a total education for me over the years. Well, yeah, I can see how it's complicated because it's still, I'm still figuring out more as we go along, right? And I guess looking back, what's been the hardest part with Hatra, unless we've already touched on it, if you wanted to say it again, but. Well, I think the hardest part has been this customer adoption. It's just because you can't go into a company and say, okay, give me everything you got. Well, you can, but you might not get the business. You could, but they're not going to get the business. And so you have to convince every single person down the line that it's okay to use you. You know, we do have one customer that's like, you know what? After it took years, but they're like, okay, we're doing nationwide with you with these programs. And when we acquire companies or whatever, they're going to use you. Everyone's got to use you at least 80% of the time and all that. And so they've put processes in to do that. And it's worked very well for them and it's worked very well for us. But that is the exception, not the rule. What still drives you today? The people. I've got a lot of people that we've built this company around. And I've always felt like my mission in life is to create jobs. You know, another story from when I was a child is we went to family counseling. I have no idea why. I thought we had a pretty good family. This is before my brother died. And I was probably eight years old, maybe at the time. And my mother, I remember coming up to me after one of the sessions and she said, the psychiatrist said, you are going to make a difference in this world. Now, for God's sake, why did you tell an eight-year-old that? Because I have lived with that, it sounds like burden, my whole life. I've had this need to figure out how I'm going to change the world, how I'm going to have an impact on the world. So I feel like I've translated that into, you know what, I'm going to provide jobs for people. And that's what I do around the globe. No, I think you've done that. I think the opportunity to employ people, especially in other countries where they're thankful for the jobs means a lot too, right? So it seems like at least you've made your counselor from when you were eight, at least happy, <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah, you wouldn't believe, you know, I get people that come up to me in India and are crying because we've changed their lives. Oh, I feel like because you fired them. Okay. No, because we've changed their lives. And uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> it is quite touching to see what has happened around the world. And, you know, and we started off as a virtual company. I worked out of my shed. I worked out of my house. We had an office periodically, but that was around the printing and mailing center that we called it the print shop. But everybody we hired in the U.S., except for in India, that was an office-based location because we were running 24-7 and we had computers, one computer for every three people. But here in the U.S., as we hired people, it was all virtual. So when the pandemic struck and everyone was like, oh my God, everyone's got to go work at home, it wasn't a big deal for us here in the U.S. Now, it wasn't India. We almost, we could have easily gone out of business because overnight, I had 3,000 employees that couldn't go to an office, couldn't do work, and we only had one computer for each person and none of them had internet in their home, not one. I still to this day pinch myself that we got through it the way as well as we did, but we got internet installed in 3,000 homes over two months, got another 2,000 computers ordered, configured, and delivered and set up, and we got everybody online within two months. It was quite amazing. If I had said to do that before the pandemic, it would have taken three years to go do that. But, you know, crisis drives creativity. And you got that back from being a pool man. That's right. There Full we go. circle. You're going to keep coming back to that pool thing. I can tell. <laughs> no, I do. I like it. That's a, I think it's a cool part of your story, right? Right. Anyone who's listening to is like, you know, they're a go-getter. They're trying to learn in their free time about business and learn from your story, not from sure your old URL 
status factory who's a celebrity entrepreneur we're trying to learn from real business people like you and i think some people sometimes you just need space to relax your mind and just think and brainstorm or whatever i do like that you're willing to do that and not just grind yourself into the ground and feel like you have to go get a corporate career right and it's not only space for brain sometimes you got to do what you got to do to put food on the table well thanks for coming on and sharing your story do you have any last words of wisdom for anyone who's listening you know, I just believe in honesty, integrity, and respect. Those are my three pillars that I take to my employees every day. I just believe that if you do the right thing, I believe firmly in karma, and that if you do the right thing, it will come back. And I'm not one to go screw people for the sake of screwing to get ahead. You know, we're all in this together, but you know, you do compete, but I don't think you have to compete in a bad way. I think you can compete legitimately and still succeed. And if anyone wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to reach out to you? I think the best way is to send me an email, right? Uh, jsimpson at potchercorp.com is the best way to reach me. Uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a good way. I don't normally check LinkedIn very often, but I do read those messages and I will get back to people as well. All right. Yeah. So just look up for John Simpson and then Patra. I think that's the best way to search for it. At least that's how I was able to find you because there's a lot of John Simpson. Sure. On yeah. There, yeah. So. John Simpson and, pa and it's Patra, not Patra, just to be clear. <laughs> that, that's okay. So, hey, I appreciate the time to talk with you and share my story. And hopefully that will help one of your listeners somewhere down the line. I know what you're thinking right now. You want more tech-based interviews, don't you? Well, if you become a Patreon member, we've got plenty of extra interviews for you right now. Just jump on over to the Patreon feed. Plus, I've got a special spreadsheet that has every interview categorized by industry. So you can easily jump to interviews that will help your business immediately. So to become a member, just check out our website, millionaire-interviews.com. And if you made it this far into the podcast and you aren't a Patreon member, well, then what's holding you back?